Hey, you're watching TV when suddenly your programming is interrupted by a late breaking news. A war correspondent appears on the battlefield reporting on a crisis. Well, this is what happens in tonight's text, Isaiah 36 through 39. In chapter 36, the prophecy breaks. The prophet becomes a reporter. He interrupts the prophecy with news from the war zone. Assyria has been slaughtered. Isaiah covers one of the most dramatic battles in Old Testament history. What happens to the Assyrian troops outside Jerusalem's city walls was so significant that the Bible records it three different times. 2 Chronicles 32, 2 Kings 18 through 20, and here in tonight's text. Chapter 36 begins. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Assyria was the heavyweight champion of the world, you could say. Their army appeared invincible. They had a string of knockouts under their belt. And the Assyrian king, this man named Sennacherib, had ordered his army into the northern outskirts of Jerusalem. They had basically rolled through these outposts. These were the border towns. These were the city of Jerusalem's first line of defense. The Assyrian troops breezed through the barricades, and they camped their armies just outside the city walls. Imagine living in the city and suddenly waking up one day and peering over the walls at 200,000 soldiers covering the landscape like ants on buttered bread. These men are armed and dangerous, and they're ready to attack and destroy your family. You can imagine fear reigned among the citizens in Jerusalem. Then the king of Assyria, he sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now, Lachish was the field headquarters for the Assyrian army. It was southwest of Jerusalem. And since the invaders had swarmed in from the north, it basically meant that the city was surrounded. This Rabshakeh, he was an Assyrian diplomat. He was officially the chief cupbearer in the Assyrian court. This was the position that Nehemiah, by the way, would later occupy. Think of him as the head of the secret service. He was in charge of the king's personal security. And here he's dispatched with a message to the Jewish king, Hezekiah. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet him. An official delegation. The Assyrian general sending his emissary, the Jewish king sending his three chief advisors. And they're meeting in this strategic location. And by the way, everyone knew that this showdown was happening in a strategic location. 33 years earlier, we read about it back in Isaiah chapter 7. The prophet Isaiah had stood in this exact spot to warn Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, about putting his trust in the Assyrians. Isaiah had encouraged Ahaz to trust the Lord, not in this foreign power. That if he trusted Assyria, it would backfire. Assyria would turn against him. 
Ahaz had failed to heed God's warning, and now his son, Hezekiah, was facing the consequences. You know, it's an irony of life that when you fail to listen to God, you find yourself returning to the same places and encountering the same situations that you thought you'd never face again. No accident that this occurred, this meeting occurred by the aqueduct from the upper pool to the highway on the fuller's field. It was the place Isaiah had warned him. It's interesting, disobedience at first appears to be a shortcut. But sin, oh, it takes you in circles. It ends up becoming the long way around. Well, verse 4. Then the Rabshakeh said to him, to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now understand a trademark of the Assyrians was their propaganda machine. They, they knew how to play on the people's fears. They knew how to bully their opponent. They would send messengers to stir up fear in the hearts of those that they encountered. They were the masters of intimidation. Cities often surrendered to the Assyrians without even a fight, just after having heard their intimidating threats. You know, it reminds me of Satan himself. Satan is the ultimate intimidator. He's the slanderer. In John 8, Jesus calls him the father of lies. And it's the devil's strategy as well to intimidate us. He tries to frighten us and bully us and deceive us. And this is why we need to know who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. And not back down. We should rise up in faith, not cower away in fear. James 4 verse 7 promises us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, the Reb Shaka had done his homework. He reasons. Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans... It will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. You see, the Rabshakeh knew that Hezekiah had just signed a protection treaty with the Egyptians. But here the Assyrian ensures Hezekiah that Egypt will be no help. At the time, Egypt was in a state of decline. Ethiopia had become the dominant African power. Egypt was a broken reed. And the Assyrian troops were now threatening Hezekiah's capital. No ally was to be found. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now here's a foreigner addressing internal Jewish affairs and getting it all wrong. The Rabshakeh mentions the high places. That Hezekiah had eradicated. And he mistakes them as altars of Yahweh. He's saying, you trust your God. But you've torn down his places of worship, these altars. Why would he help you? That's his intimidation. The truth of the matter is that God despised these high places. They weren't his altars at all. He considered them idolatry. You remember God's law required for sacrifices not to be offered on any particular high place or any particular hill, but in one designated spot, the temple there in Jerusalem. The high places were illicit altars. 
that promoted an aberrant, do-it-yourself kind of religion. God outlawed these altars, and Hezekiah was right in demolishing them. But here the Rabshakeh is doing what the prophet warned Judah about in Isaiah 5 verse 20. There he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, some people have no spiritual discernment at all. They confuse right and wrong. They get it all backwards. Be careful that you don't listen to them. Verse 8 tells us, Now therefore I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. Notice the dig. He's saying, your Jewish army, you don't have 2,000 able riders, let alone the type of cavalry that can defeat the mighty Assyrians. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Oh my, how dare him. But you hear what he's saying? He's the Assyrian and he's saying that, wait a minute, Yahweh has directed us. Yahweh, God of Israel says, fight against Israel. Tear them down, I'll fight for you. Yahweh fighting for Assyria? This is preposterous. And yet Satan is awful good at putting words in God's mouth, isn't he? You recall in the Garden of Eden, Satan asked Adam and Eve, Has God indeed said? And then he went on to twist God's words out of context. Hey, when Satan starts putting words in God's mouth, when Satan quotes scripture, you can count on him misquoting the passage. Well, then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, the Jewish delegation, they said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. You see, this delegation, this showdown there by the, the aqueduct, it had attracted quite a crowd. People from Jerusalem, they were up on top of the walls, they were listening in, they wanted to hear what was being said. The Assyrians' rhetoric was stirring up fear in their hearts. Now this Rabshakeh, he was bilingual. And the delegation, the Jewish delegation, they want him to speak in his own tongue, his own native tongue, which was the Aramaic, rather than in the Hebrew that the people could understand. But he was speaking in Hebrew because he wanted all of the citizens to hear what was being said. He wanted to stir up fear. That was his whole intention. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Oh my. That would have been the outcome of a siege. The invader would surround the city and then he'd cut off the supply lines. He'd divert its own water source and he'd literally starve it out. Its inhabitants would become so desperate for food and water that they would eat their own waste and drink their own urine. This could be the fate of Jerusalem. He's saying, hey, I'm going to say these things for these people here because they're the ones that are going to suffer. They're the ones that are going to go through this siege. They need to know what's at stake. Verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, in Hebrew, And said, hear the words of the great king. Now he's not talking to the delegation any longer. He's talking to the people sitting on the wall. 
the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's trying to cut Hezekiah's legs out from under him. He's speaking to Hezekiah's own subjects, questioning the king's wisdom in defying the Assyrians. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. And oh boy, he lays it on thick here. Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Let's just exchange gifts. That's what he's got in mind. And every one of you can eat from his own vine. And every one from his own fig tree. And every one of you can drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Oh my. He is laying it on thick. The Syrians had no intention whatsoever of taking the Jews to this wonderland of bread and vineyards, wherever that might be. In fact, Assyria was infamous for its barbaric and its inhumane treatment of its captive foes. Again, they would put out eyes and they would rip out tongues. And they would skin a victim like you'd clean a fish. The Assyrian trademark, their calling card, was a pile of human skulls outside the gate of their conquered city. For the Rabshaka to promise the Jews grain and new wine was a lie from hell. And yet, you've got to know, this is Satan's one advantage in the spiritual battle. Unlike God, he doesn't have to tell the truth. I mean, he just lies. It's all that comes out of his mouth. He'll promise you anything with no intention whatsoever of delivering on his promise. Always remember Satan's intention for you. It never changes. It is only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Well, the Assyrian continues his rant in verse 18. He says, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath in Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephyr, uh, Zephyrvaim, maybe? The key there is not to stop and attract attention to yourself, but it's just to kind of read right through it very quickly, like you knew what you were talking about. Hey, when Assyria went to battle, they believed that it was a contest between gods. It was the God of the Assyrians fighting against the God of these other nations. It was my God versus your God. May the best God win. That was their view of warfare. Here the Assyrian diplomat, he lists the gods that have fallen on their current campaign. And he says, what makes Judah think that Yahweh will be any different? And of course, this is the argument that Satan uses on folks today. Oh, you've tried religion. It didn't work for you. I mean, why do you think Jesus is going to be any different? See, Satan doesn't want you to consider that perhaps you haven't tried the right religion. Or that you haven't found the right God, the true God. Not all gods are the same. There are false gods. In fact, all gods but one God is a false god. Yes, Assyria defeated all the gods of all the nations they had encountered. But perhaps they've yet to meet the God who is really God. 
Well, the Rabshaka, he continues listing uh, the gods, and he gets personal in verse 19. He says, indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Samaria was the capital of the northern Hebrew nation, Israel. It had lost and been defeated by the Assyrians two decades earlier in 722 B.C. Judah's sister had already fallen. Well, the Assyrian mouthpiece continues his blasphemous argument. He says, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And if you were in Jerusalem facing 200,000 bloodthirsty troops, just a stone's throw away, trust me, the Rob Shaka's line of reasoning might grab your attention. He was loud enough for these wall sitters and all of Jerusalem to hear him and to fear his words. And yet the one person he didn't count on listening to his blasphemy was the king of heaven. For God heard his rant. God heard his blasphemy. And the true God is about to show Assyria and Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh who is boss. Verse 21. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. That is the Jewish delegation. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. And they told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Verse chapter 37. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. King Hezekiah went into the temple to seek the king of kings. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. This is revealing. Judah's head of state is facing a crisis of life and death proportion. And rather than call together his generals, or his senior officials, or his cabinet members, he sends for the godliest man that he knows. He calls for Isaiah. He knows what he needs. He needs somebody that can get in touch with God. And so he calls for Isaiah. When your friends are in trouble, do they call for you? Do they know you as a godly person? Someone who can get in touch with God? Boy, I've got to get Alan to pray for me. I need to get home. I need to call, I need to call Rico and get her to pray for me. Is that their attitude? And they said to Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. This was a familiar proverb. A great opportunity is before us in essence. But we have no strength to fight and take advantage of the opportunity. God has opened the door, but we're too weak to enter in. He says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah had confidence in Isaiah. If anyone can connect with God, it was him. Pray for us, Isaiah. And so the servants of King Hezekiah, they came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, 
and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. God says, I've heard his boast. I've heard his blasphemy. And this is what I'm going to do for him. We'll see later that this is exactly what happens. Then the Rabshakeh returned. And he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. But he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Now Sennacherib had heard rumors of a conflict with the Ethiopians of North Africa. And he doesn't want a war on two fronts, north and south. And so again, he feels like his best strategy is to go back and try again to intimidate Hezekiah into surrender. So that he doesn't have to fight him. This time though, he tries it through a letter. Verse 10. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Now notice this time, there's no fictitious sugar-coated promise of grain and wine and breads and vineyards. No, no, no. It's getting tough now. He's talking about destruction. You want to get destroyed? Have the gods of the nations delivered those who my fathers have destroyed? Goes on in Haran and Reseph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of the name I can't name? Hena and Iva. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. I love this reaction. I could preach a sermon on this. He opened up the letter. He read it. He unrolled the scroll. And then he just spread it out before the Lord. Okay, Lord. Here it is. Here's what I'm facing. When you're Faced with a major decision, when you're threatened by a looming crisis, here's the way you should respond. Roll it out before the Lord. Get it off your chest. Just spill the beans. Pour it out. Get out a pen and paper if need be and write it down. Just spread it out before the Lord. Reminds me of the pastor who received a threatening letter one day. On the letter, there was really only one word that had been written. Big, bold letters that just said, fool. Fool. It was addressed to him in an envelope mall, but he opened it up and just said, Fool. Oh, my. That Sunday, though, he brought the letter into the pulpit with him. He stood up. He told the crowd that he had received an unusual letter. He said, Never before have I opened a letter where the writer signed his name but forgot to write anything else. (laughs) Well, Hezekiah also brings his letter into the temple. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And I love this prayer. I like to call it a back-against-the-wall prayer. There are times in everyone's life when the odds are against them. When you're backed up against a wall with no way out. When you're there, here's what you can pray. Hezekiah prayed, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel... 
the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Hezekiah has a big problem, no doubt. But he has a bigger God. And he says of God, you have made heaven and earth. God is the creator. He's sovereign over sea, sky, and land. He's king over all the nations of the world. No king is greater. No problem bigger than our God. Often our problem clouds our perspective. And this is why we need to spread it out. We need to spread it out, get it out, and then immediately get our focus off of our problem and onto God. You know, there is only one time when a fly is bigger than a tree. And that's when it's sitting right on the end of your nose. Because that's all you can see. Focus on God's greatness and the fly will seem a lot smaller. And then he prays. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. He said this about you, Lord. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. I mean, so what if they've knocked off a few wooden statues? Let's see how they do against the real deal God. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are the Lord, You alone. Remember Hezekiah's prayer. When you have to pray it, when your back is against the wall, remember the five steps we talked about this morning. Take it to God. Spread it out. Focus on God and His greatness. See the situation from God's perspective. And then lastly, make your request with God's glory in mind. Well, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos. Sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you. Pardon me. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib, you have angered the one true God. I pity you. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. A prideful Assyria had taken credit for its victories and its advances, but then God rebukes her. He says, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. You see, the king of of Assyria, Sennacherib, he didn't realize that God was the one who had raised him up. 
that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one behind his victories and his advances. Yahweh had been the secret of a serious success. You remember for centuries now, numerous Hebrew prophets had been predicting that God was going to use Assyria as an instrument of his judgment. God was responsible for his rise to power, not Sennacherib or any of the other Assyrian rulers who had ruled in in Assyria before him. Verse 27 says, therefore, in other words, because of God's intervention, their inhabitants, the inhabitants of all the cities that they had conquered, had little power. God was the one who won these victories for you. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. And I love the ominous words here that God says to Sennacherib in verse 28. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in. Sennacherib, God says, I know where you live. (laughs) You know, you've probably heard this story before. I'm going to tell it again. For 35 years, my dad worked for the telephone company. And so when my mom started getting obscene phone calls, it was pretty easy for him to trace the call. Dad got the name and the address of the teenager who was making the calls. He even drove by the kid's house. He noticed his car, got a good good description of it. He even noticed the boy getting out of the car, walking into the house. He actually took note of the clothes he was wearing that day. And then that night, my dad called the young man. He told him his address, the make, model, and color of his car. Even gave him a description of what he'd been wearing that day. And then the boy was reminded that he didn't know what my dad looked like. But my dad assured him that if my mom ever got another obscene phone call, my dad would strike him when he least expected it. My dad laughed later. He said, boy, the the kid didn't know what to say. My dad made sure that that boy never made another phone call, let alone another obscene phone call. That was the end of the calls. Hey, it's frightening when you hear the words, I know where you live. That's what God says to Sennacherib. Verse 28. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. God is going to lead this great world empire around like it's a dog on a leash. You know, Ezekiel 38 says that he'll do the same to the Russian army in the last days. That he'll set a hook in their jaw, and he'll coax them into Israel where he will then rain down fire and destroy them. Verse 30, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year, such as grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same, also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. In other words, this siege, this Assyrian siege, it will be over soon. Uh, Judah will be back to business as normal. God is about to deal in a surprising way with these Assyrians on their doorstep. They'll be growing crops again soon. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. I love that. 
take root downward and bear fruit upward. You know, this is God's will for you as well. He wants you to take root downward. He wants you to sink your roots deep into God. He wants you to build a solid faith. He wants you to lay a good foundation. He wants you to build character in your life. He wants you to fortify your faith. Sink your roots downward. Why? So you can bear fruit upwards. So that then the good things can flow from your life. and the Fruit can be seen and the love can grow. He says, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will deliver his people. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. In other words, the Assyrians won't even have time to dig in and cause havoc within the city. He says, by the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God is about to act. And suddenly it happens. Verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Of course, I've never seen a corpse that wasn't dead. But he's emphatic. There they all were, corpses on the ground. They were all dead. A single combat angel sent by God annihilated an army of 185,000 troops in one night. 185,000. That's roughly the population, as I said this morning, of Columbus, Georgia. Bedtime proved dead time. It happened at night. And who was this special ops angel? This one angel wrecking crew. Who was the ranger angel here? It was Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus. Earlier in Isaiah 7 through 10, victory was predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7 tells us that a virgin will bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, he credits Emmanuel with stopping this invading army. He says he will break them into pieces. And then Isaiah 9, we're given Emmanuel's Job description. The government will be upon his shoulders. And then his names. He'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then we're told this Emmanuel will reign forever and occupy the throne of David. You see, here's the part of the Christmas story that's seldom told. Imagine Joseph when the angel tells him that the baby will be called Emmanuel. Joseph knew Isaiah. He knew the story of Emmanuel, the Assyrian avenger. That Emmanuel was the one who who was outside in the valleys around Jerusalem, slaying that army that night. What in the world did Joseph think when the angel told him that Mary's baby would be the same Emmanuel? My, this baby was not a newcomer. This baby had been here before. This baby had been to battle. It was hard to comprehend. 
But the baby, Mary, laid in the manger hay, had already made hay outside of Jerusalem. Seven centuries earlier, the babe of Bethlehem slaughtered 185,000 troops just up the road outside Jerusalem. He came brandishing a sword. He flashed his metal, and by the time he returned it to its scabbard, it was dripping with rebel blood. The baby's first cry had been a battle cry. Can you imagine Joseph as he tried to process that thought? And this should cause us to appreciate the humility of Jesus all the more. God became a man, but in addition, a warrior became a baby. The invincible became vulnerable. Jesus left a command post for a cradle. You see, for our salvation to occur, the slayer became the slaughtered. That's how far he went to save the likes of us. One other note. Not only does the Bible record this slaughter, but it also appears written in secular history The Greek historian Herodotus makes mention of a serious defeat. He says that it was due to a plague of mice that invaded the camp. Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adrimamelech, And Sherezer struck him down with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Ishardan, his son, reigned in his place. Secular histories tell us that Sennacherib was worshipping his God when his sons pushed the idol over on top of him, knocked him out, and then killed him with a sword. It's interesting. It fulfilled verse 7 of chapter 37. He did return to his land as God had promised, but he fell by the sword. Isaiah 38, in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now now this is not good news. When you're sick and the pastor comes to visit you in the hospital, this is not what you want to hear from a pastoral visit. Hey, you're sick. God says you're going to die. Make sure you get everything in order. Hey, pick out a new suit. Make sure you got your will taken care of. Have you thought about a grave plot? And this is not what you want your pastor saying to you. Get your house in order. You're going to die. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. He prayed before when his back was against the wall. Now he turns his face toward the wall. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Obviously, he didn't want to die. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Because he prays, God gives to Hezekiah 15 extra years. Which brings up the question, 
Can we change God's mind? And the answer is a very definitive yes and no. Some of God's plans are unalterable. They're set in stone. They're written in concrete. But there are other plans of God that are subject to our input. You see, here's how it works. Here's how it works at your house. You're a father. You're the head of your household. But this is how it operates. There are times when you make decisions that aren't going to change no matter how much pleading your kids do. Your decision is a done deal. Whereas there are other decisions where you're open and you're flexible. In fact, you may even be looking for their input. And here's the problem from the kid's vantage point. You never know which decision is in cement and which decision is sort of a floating variable until you ask. (laughs) You just never know. This is why God encourages us to pray. Because you never know. Sometimes God's will is written in stone. More often than not, God is looking for our input. In fact, He's encouraging our input. He wants us to feel part of the family, like you want your kids to feel part of the family. And so, how do you do that? You give them a say in the decisions. And that's what God has done with us. This is why we're told in Ephesians 6, verse 18, to be praying always. Now, having said that, here's another question. Is it wise to change God's mind once He's spoken? (laughs) And Hezekiah might tell us, absolutely not. This was not the wisest move I made getting those extra 15 years. In fact, the bonus years create two problems. Two negative things happen in these 15 years. One is the birth of Manasseh. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, became the most evil king in Judah's history and led to their utter destruction. He brought idolatry even into the temple precincts. It was horrible what he did. He slaughtered babies to Molech. Manasseh was a terrible king. He wouldn't have even been born had Hezekiah died when he was supposed to. But he asked for those 15 years. And the other negative outcome... We find in chapter 39. We'll get there in just a minute. Chapter 38 verse 7 tells us, And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which He has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now, when Isaiah asks him for a sign that he'll get these 15 years, the Lord blows his mind. God turns back the shadow on the sundial 10 degrees or the equivalent of about 45 minutes. Now, how did that happen? Some commentators try to explain the phenomena as a formation of clouds that just sort of refracted the sunlight, but that hardly explains what's stated. There is historical evidence that along with Assyria's defeat, there was some kind of celestial, cosmic disturbance, some kind of cataclysmic event in the heavens. The same thing that caused 
the, the sun to, to, go, to turn back for Joshua's long day. You remember when God did this cosmic thing in the sky in order to give Joshua more time to win his battle? That same kind of thing could have occurred here. It may have been a flyby with another planet, a close flyby that sort of tinkered with the Earth's axis and its rotation. It could have been a comet penetrating the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever happened may have caused the tilt in the earth's axis. You know there is a tilt in our earth's axis. Prior to Hezekiah's day, the world's calendars were all marked by 360-day years. 12 months of 30 days. Go back and you'll find that the ancient calendars were all symmetrical. But around this time, the ancient calendars started to adjust for this asymmetrical rotation caused by a tilted axis. It's possible that God's attack on the Assyrians, the loss of this 45 minutes on the calendar, happened because of some kind of astronomical event. Verse 9 tells us, This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. In response to God's mercy here, King Hezekiah picks up a pen and he writes a psalm to God. I said, In the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Hezekiah was disturbed by the prospects of dying in the prime of his life. He says, in the prime of my life, I shall die. You know, we also have that kind of reaction, don't we, whenever a young man dies. I've done funerals before for men in their 20s and 30s. and It's always sort of a sad time. You, you feel as if this life was cut off in midstream. In the prime of his life he died. But how do we know? How do we know his life was cut off in midstream? Here's the problem. No one knows the number of their days. No one knows how long your life is supposed to be. Who knows? Perhaps God knows you're only going to live 40 years. Or you're only going to live 50 years. Maybe God knows that. For one man, 30 years might be a very full life. For another man, God has appointed him to live 70 years. Who knows? And a full life is never measured by quantity, but by quality. It's been said a life is appraised not by its duration, but by its donation. That's how you measure a life. Psalm 48, verse 14 is a helpful verse. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our God even to death. I figure I'm going to live just as long as God wants me to live. That'll be fine with me. Hezekiah says in verse 12, My lifespan is gone. I was going to say that'll be fine with me too because... I would hate to get another 15 years and Kathy would have to have another baby. She wouldn't like that at all. So, anyway, Hezekiah says in verse 12, My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. 
Like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fell from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. Notice Hezekiah doesn't want to die. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Well, he says in the light of God's mercies, he'll walk carefully. He'll walk gratefully. But you know, he doesn't. That's not how he walks. Second Chronicles 32 verse 25 states this of Hezekiah's later life. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Rather than humble himself in light of God's mercies, these 15 extra years made him more haughty. Made him proud, lifted him up, not humbled him. Verse 16. O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Oh wow, what a great picture. When God forgives us. Notice he puts all our sins behind his back. That's where he can no longer see them, by the way. He puts them behind his back where he can no longer see them. He buries them in the sea of forgetfulness. It's just as if I'd never sinned. In fact, that's what it means to be justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. He puts our sin behind his back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. In other words, who's going to praise you, Lord, if I die? Who's going to teach my children, Lord, if I die? The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, after Emmanuel's slaughter of the Assyrians, the Assyrian empire waned. Babylon became the rising power. They eventually overthrowed Assyria. But here the Babylonian king, he is forging alliances. He's making friends. And so what does he do but sends a get well card to Hezekiah? This time Hezekiah receives this letter. (laughs) And, And rather than take it to the Lord, it goes to his head. He gets trapped here by flattery. Oh, this newcomer, the Babylonians. Oh, they're interested in me. How flattering. And along with this letter came a delegation. Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures. It's not a good thing to show your enemies. When the hoodlums down the street come over to your house, don't show them where you keep your valuables. The silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, 
All that was found among his treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah didn't show them. He was so naive. These were spies in disguise. And here's what happens. When Babylon Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar eventually attacks Jerusalem, it'll be a hundred years later, but they're coming. The Babylonians are coming. When they arrive, guess what? They know exactly the location of Judah's treasures. And that's the first place they go. They loot the treasures. They take them back to Babylon. How did they know? A prideful Hezekiah showed them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. You can read about Babylon's invasion in 2 Kings chapter 24. They knew exactly where these treasures were located thanks to Hezekiah. Verse 7, And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We know four by name, don't we? Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Or their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's why we believe that Daniel was a eunuch. They, when he entered the court there in Babylon, you know, they didn't like young men having access to the princesses of the court. You know, so they, they turned them into eunuchs. Perhaps Daniel uh, had to suffer the same plight. Here they certainly uh, implies that happened to some of the princes of Judah. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. And he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. And isn't that a familiar sounding argument? Listen to Hezekiah's selfish response. Future Jewish generations are going to reap the consequences of his foolishness. Oh, but at least there'll be peace and truth for me. At least I won't have any problems. At least it won't affect me. This is how American politicians are thinking today, racking up all this debt that our kids and our grandkids are going to have to pay back. Well, at least it's going to go well for me. That was Hezekiah's problem. Well, there we have it. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. We'll get to chapter 40 soon.